0: Our scripture reading today is from 1 Kings eighteen twenty to 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, Baal then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by the fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, "O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sias of sea. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the, brook, to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: All right. Thank you, Mary, for reading that passage, that long passage. Um, but, I mean, where do, you, where do you trim a text like that, right? It's, it's, a, it's a great story. Uh, it's good to be with you again. I, my name is Russ. If we haven't met, I'm the pastor here. Uh, I've been out of the country for the last couple of Sundays, and uh, I missed you all, but not too much. And so it's, it's good to be back, though, this morning in, um, in this passage. This passage is, is one of those, um, for a preacher, it's on a top ten list of, of opportunities, to, of, of texts to preach. Uh, Elijah and the Prophets of Baal, it's up there with, with David and Bathsheba. And, uh, you know, the visitation of the three wi- the wise men, not necessarily three of them. But anyway, there's these lists of passages in Scripture that are kind of the big ones that you look forward to really, really getting into. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to be talking about this, this text today, although in, in writing the sermon, it, it, it kind of took a different direction than I imagined it might have um, when I sat down to work on it. Let me tell you a story about my brother. I have a brother who's 14 months older than me, so we were pretty close growing up. And uh, he, out of, after a year or so after high school, he joined the army, and he's been uh, in the army for a long time. He's uh, uh, chief warrant officer level four, uh, so if you know military ranking, that's that's pretty high for for that side of of the military. And um, uh, he was, when he joined, he was he was 21 years old, and, he, and, so, and that made him one of the oldest recruits going through basic training, because a lot of those guys uh, that go through basic training come right out of high school, they've never really been away from home before, this is their first uh, foray into um, life outside of the home. It's anything but independent living, I mean, every minute of your day is accounted for, um, but my brother had had been away for a while, so he'd seen some things and was kind of a, uh, a little bit of an elder statesman for the young recruits that, that were there. And now, the story I'm going to tell you, you have to remember, this is about 30 years ago. Um, it's a little bit of a kinder, gentler Army right now. Um, I, I don't think the Army would like that, but, uh, but what drill sergeants used to be able to do to uh, recruits going through basic training has changed uh, some in those days, drill sergeants uh, could be really, really intense, and the whole point of basic training is is trying to one show a recruit uh, what they 're capable of uh, and really draw out of them what they 're capable of and two kind of see areas where they might be prone to to weakness or to, or to, you know to cracking and, and giving up and so and then to, and then to build them up in those places well. One of the ways that this happened when my brother was going through basic training is that drill sergeants would would mock the recruits pretty mercilessly and berate them and would punish them for things that other people had done. And there was this one drill sergeant in particular that he would tell me about who just loved to say unflattering things about the recruits' mothers. That was his thing. He He loved insulting somebody's mother. And, uh, and, and one of the trainees that he was going through BASIC with uh, took great offense at this. And, uh, and the sergeant noticed. And so he just leaned in. It was like this kind of had a target on his back and, and would just push and push and push and insult this guy's mother in particular. And my brother saw the kid starting to lose it. And he saw him starting to get angry and uh, pace around. And, and the kid looked at my brother and he said, if he says one more thing about my mom, I'm going to punch him in the nose. And so my brother went up to this recruit, and he put his hands on his shoulders like an older brother, and he said, I I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to listen to me, okay? Are you listening? And he nodded, and my brother said, he doesn't know your mom. They've never met I love that story. It's just such a good story about my brother and just his sense of humor and his wisdom. He doesn't know your mom. They've never met, man. Where in your life are you worked up about something? Are you at your wits end about something? Are you about to crack in response to some person or to some situation that doesn't know you exist? Where in your life are you burdened and bothered by something that has no concern whatsoever about you? And conversely, the other side of that coin, where might you be bringing sacrifices or trying really, really hard or working the angles to earn love or acceptance from people or systems that neither know nor care that you're trying so hard? Where's that happening in your life? I have places like that. I, things that I think, you know, it's for me, if I'm just going to be transparent, this isn't in my notes, but if I could just be transparent, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, and uh, nines want everybody to be happy all the time, everybody to be at peace all the time, and that's, that's like this kind of, I find myself... Um, unsettled when there's a disturbance in relationships, and, and I and I feel the need to try to figure out how to bring harmony and peace. But to who, and how, and why? That I don't know <laughs> about that. But there's, but I find myself driven by this, staying up, thinking about you know, trying to being bothered. Elijah is saying to God's people in this passage. You're trying to worship a bunch of things, and you're trying to um, gain the favor of gods that don't really even exist. How long are you going to go about limping between two different opinions? He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But have a singularity of mind and worship a God that knows you're here. And then he went on to ask the question, am I the only one left who follows the Lord? And then there's this confrontation that happens. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, one of the top ten for an aspiring preacher. When I first read this story, I would have been a high school student. And I loved it because it really had it all, right? I mean, it's, it's a showdown between good and evil. It's the story of an underdog facing impossible odds. It's a miraculous defeat of evil. And then you've got Elijah himself, who is this showman of the first caliber, right, who is taunting and rebuking and seemingly laughing his way through this confrontation. And I thought that that's what this story was about, this showdown between good and evil and the prophets of Baal, between Elijah and these false gods, and that the part of the story that was really, really fun to get to was kind of the sick burns, you know, that, that, that Elijah deals out to these, these prophets. I mean, we love a sick burn, right? That's amusing language, you know, the kids are using these days. The kids are like, no, we're not. No, we're not. One of my favorite sick burns is in the uh, Mariah Carey song, um, All I Want for Christmas is You, where she says, I don't want a lot for Christmas. And then she says, all I want for Christmas is you. That's a pretty sick burn, isn't it? Anyway, that's what I thought this story was about was this showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But it isn't about that. It's not about one side sticking it to the other. We, we have so many voices in our culture right now that try to divide us into camps. We have it as much with news channels as we do with social media and, and who just try to make fun of people who are in in one camp and make you feel really good about belonging to the camp that you're in promising this kind of glory if you're on the right side of things if you're never caught in a humiliating trip and fall on the internet then you're doing okay but if you are people are going to just laugh at you and 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 ridicule you and have so much fun with your embarrassment and i feel like it's a it's it's a it's just so prevalent. It's, it's the culture that we're steeped in right now. I mean, it's, it's the culture of, of, of TikTok. It's the culture of um, pick your slanted news organization. It's, it's the culture of saying to you, look, if you want to be right in this world, just be on the right side of things. And the way that you'll feel right is you'll hear the other voices that will congratulate you on being where you are as the other side is just dismantled and humiliated and ridiculed. And there are so many voices that are promoting this, and they're all around us, and no generation is safe from it. These voices that are promoting an adversarial posture toward others. And as a pastor, I think about it all the time. I think about what does it mean for me to pastor a congregation where where so many of the the voices that we're getting day in and day out are telling us to feel proud of who we are and what we believe and how we think, and as we're feeling proud about that, to belittle and ridicule those who don't think like we do. And there are times when, when it feels like, you know, if the fruit of the Spirit are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? If if that's what the, the is to flow out of the person who belongs to the Lord, at times, if I'm being honest, it can feel almost futile to try to push back against the voices that are just trying to say, "No, no, no! Just be in a camp and make fun of everybody." And so when I was thinking about this passage and I was studying what's happening in this passage, it would be really, really easy for for us to say that what this passage is about is God's people showing up the idolaters. And look how strong and cool God is. And the prophets of Baal, their God doesn't even show up. But we have to remember that the worshipers in question in this text, it's Israel. It's Israel. Israel has started worshiping false gods. There was a news story that came out not long ago that said archaeological findings suggest that Israel, that ancient Israel was not a polytheist. It was not a monotheistic nation, but that they actually worshiped pagan gods, which newsflash, yes, <laughs> that's the story of the New Testament. They were supposed to be devoted to the Lord, to, have, to worship the Lord and him only, But so many times they turn to the worship of idols. But when we look here at what Elijah says at the end of this confrontation, in his prayer in verses 36 and on, that's when we start to see what this is really about. He said to his people, how long are you going to go limping between these two? Gods, these two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And at the end, he prays this, when, 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 when the Lord has, has consumed the offering. He says, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. That's what he says to the Lord. Let it be known to the worshipers gathered here that you are the God in Israel. And then he says, and let it be clear to all that I am just a servant here. I'm just a servant. Elijah wants them to know he's not the power. That's what Elijah wants in this passage. He wants the people of God to see God. And they don't. Why does he want this? Because he sees the condition that they're in that they're currently limping between two opinions about who their God is, and they're adrift, and they're going nowhere, and they're confused. See, the point of this passage is not who is God as opposed to Baal. The point of this passage is who is God to you? Who is God to you? It's not, is God stronger than the prophets of Baal? Or is Elijah stronger than the prophets of Baal? Is God stronger than Baal? Is, it's, is God your God? Or are you worshiping somebody who doesn't know your mom? Are you adrift? I ask you. Are you limping along in divided devotions? Are you thinking that you can worship as many gods as you need to? To cobble together a life that will be fulfilling and sacrificing. That you can worship one God for one desired outcome, another God for another desired outcome. Notice how Elijah frames all this, both his sacrifice and his prayer, as he anchors what he's doing in history. He uses historical language and historical symbolism in the way that even builds the altar. He builds the altar with 12 stones. What do those 12 stones represent? They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It says in First 1 Kings 18.31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. I mean, to even look at how he's arranged the stage is to see the unfolding history of a people who have been called by God, who have been led by God, who have been preserved by God. Twelve tribes that have descended from the sons of Jacob. The symbolism and intent here is supposed to be meaningful for God's people. And it's such a simple reminder, this Altar with the 12 stones of a profound truth. What is that profound truth? It's this you come from somewhere. You come from somewhere. We're not just adrift in the ether. We come from somewhere. We're connected. We're connected to other people. The body of Christ is connected to each other. When we were away this, this past week, Um, Some of the time we spent was in Northern Ireland with a Presbyterian minister and his family who lived there. I'm connected to him. We met because of a common faith and common friends, and we have a lifelong now friendship where we will see each other as often as we're in each other's countries, and that connection is because we both have the same God, that we're bound to each other. We're brothers in the Lord. We come from somewhere, And we see this idea of the connection that we have again in the way Elijah prays before God devours the sacrifice. He says, God of what? Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known that you are God in Israel. That's what he's after. Let these worshipers know that you're the God. You're the only God. And so he appeals to the God who wrote their history. He appeals to the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from whom they have all descended. It's not just that we come from somewhere and that we're connected to others, it's that we come from someone. Our lives have never been meaningless. Your life has never been meaningless. We've never had meandering existences that are of no account. Never. We matter, and we need look no further than to the people whose names Elijah connects to God. We come from somewhere. Do you matter to the gods that you worship? Do you matter to the things that you look to for your identity? Do they see you? Do they care about you? Do they even know that you exist? Do they know your mom? Or are they like Baal? meaning are they nothing? I really want us to think about this. I want us to think about what are the gods that we worship that aren't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because those other gods that we worship, reputation, prestige, money, the semblance of having things together— they are no God. They're like Baal in that sense. They're just man-made things. They're lifeless idols that have no more knowledge of you than the materials from which those idols have been carved. And if that's all Baal is, if that's all false gods are, then what good can come from offering any sacrifices to them? Nothing. I mean, what are our bales today, right? They're image, money, appearance. They're social and cultural codes that demand that we affirm one set of values and ideals and rightly shun other sets of values and ideals, which incidentally change all the time. They're not the same values and cultural uh, demands today that we had 15 years ago. And they're not the same as they were 15 years before that. They're not going to be the same 15 years from now. And yet, what do these values and ideals demand of us? Bow at this altar, unflinchingly, unreservedly. If we think that we can achieve the objective of our lives having some value and meaning, then we think that these things that we worship are gonna give us things like peace and friendship and money and admiration and respect, but, the, but these things don't know us. They're not real. It's just like the drill sergeant that didn't know The trainees' mom, the things you worship in exchange for significance don't know you and don't really care that you're here. But the God of Israel is different. Here is a God who knows, who names, who leads, who enters into everlasting covenants with his people. And not only that, he makes existence possible. I mean, look at the names Elijah uses. We're here because God has made it possible for us to be here. He uses the name Abraham. God made his covenant with Abraham, right? He said to Abraham that I'm going to make you into the father of a great nation and you will be a blessing to the world and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. The only hitch was that Abraham didn't have any children with his wife Sarah. And it wasn't just that they didn't have any children, it's that they were barren as a couple. And so unless God performed a miracle, there was no way for the covenant God made with them to be fulfilled. But what happened? God gave them the next name, Isaac. Isaac, too, was married to a woman, and they were barren as a couple. And two generations into God's covenant to make a people that he would call his own forever, that would outnumber the stars in the sky, both of the couples involved were unable to conceive. And again, God opened the womb. And who did he give the next name? Jacob, Israel. You have Jacob and Esau who were born to Isaac and Rebekah. And though Esau was born first, Jacob was tenacious and he stole and he fought to keep the covenantal birthright. And God changed his name to Israel and his sons became the 12 tribes of Israel who were represented in the 12 stones that Elijah used to build his altar to remind the people of Israel who were busy worshiping Baal that they come from somewhere. And so do we. Why does this history lesson matter? It matters because the God Elijah is praying to The God he wants Israel to see, and because it's in the canon of Scripture, wants us to see too, is not just the more powerful God in the contest between God and Baal. It's that he is their God. He's not just the stronger of the two, he is their God. And though they're limping around through life, unsure where to place their allegiance, the fact is God knows them. And he knows us in the same way. He knows our names. He knows our infirmities. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our inabilities. He knows our fears. He knows our tendency to wander. He knows our fickle allegiances. He knows the things we fail in over and over and over. He knows how easily we forget. He knows all of that. When we're at our worst as people... One of the things that we do is we just empty life of meaning. So let's just remove all the stakes of being alive. And then, and then we just laugh at the misfortune of others. And we think that status and identity are shaped just by how we rank. And we become miserable in that system. And it becomes like a religion. Religion. But it's a religion where the gods are distant or dead and our liturgies and sacrifices are hollow because nothing really matters except trying to prove our worth, which in a system like that can only come from how we compare and how we rank against other peoples. But for Israel, for God's people, their worth has never rested in how they compare to other people. Their worth has always been in being created and called and known and loved and kept by a God who rules over all creation because he alone made it. You read a passage like this and you wonder, like, how hard was it for God to display greater power than the demonic, impressive, though limited displays of the prophets of Baal. How unlikely was it that one prophet of Israel could show up 450 prophets of Baal? Well, from the perspective of those limping along, confused in a drift, stuck between two worlds, it would have seemed highly unlikely. It's why they said when Elijah proposed the... Uh, the contest, what did they say? I love the way the Old Testament words things. Um, uh, it's, they say, oh, uh, well, I'm going to find it here. See, I should have underlined it. Oh. Sorry, I'm okay with the dead air time. I just got to find it. It's, it's, it's going to be kind of anticlimactic at this point, though. They said something like that sounds like a good idea. I couldn't find it. Um, But it seems highly unlikely, like this is going to be a really good show. But you understand, right, for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was nothing. It was nothing. It was nothing for him to devour the sacrifices and lap up the water and leave the people in awe. It was nothing for him to do that. In fact, what we should be imagining is we should be imagining the restraint of God. The restraint that the God of Israel must have shown that day, the God who made the stars, the God who separated day from night, who created the sea and all that is in it, the God who made man in his image, who parted the Red Sea and swallowed Pharaoh's army, showed up that day on that hill. In that contest with the prophets of Baal. And he displayed some power, yes, but when you look at the arc of what God is capable of and what he's done, what should really blow our mind is how much power he withheld that day. That he didn't just wipe them all out. Why does God insist on preserving his people? rather than just cutting us loose when we drift away from him? The answer to that question has to do with who he is more than it has to do with who we are. The reason he doesn't just cut us loose or consume us at the same time as he's consuming the offering to the prophets of Baal is because he loves us. He didn't just know us. He loves us. And he knows us. And he keeps us. On that mountain that day, against the prophets of Baal, God wasn't primarily concerned about showing them that he was more powerful than their idol. And this is the point. His focus was was on showing Israel and us that he is their God and he alone is their God. May he give us eyes to see the same. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are the God who keeps us and that it's not the other way around, that our job is not to keep hold of you, but that you keep hold of us. Because Lord, we would be lost if that were the case. If it, was, if it was a relationship where you gave us a second chance when we blew it the first time, that would not be good news for any of us because that second chance is so far in the rear view for all of us that we would be wondering how long your patience endures But when you call your people to yourself, you tell us that you will call us, that you will keep us, that you will never let us go, that you will love us with an everlasting love. And then you demonstrate that love. And you demonstrate that love for us by sending your son, your your son, to come and live in the place of sinners like us, to live the righteous life that we've been called to live and have failed to live. He comes and lives that life in our place. And you've loved us so much that you have put our sin upon him on the cross, that he would be our atoning sacrifice to take upon himself the sins of the world. But death wouldn't hold him because he had committed no sin. And so that he would rise that victorious over the wage of sin, death, and that in faith, when our faith is in him, we would have life in his name and life forevermore that's how much you love us and that's how committed you are to us and so father i pray that even the idol of self-salvation the idol of trying to earn our salvation through our best efforts lord that you would help us to see that 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 that, a, that approach to spirituality that god doesn't know us doesn't know our name doesn't know we exist but you do And so, Father, peel our grip back from the things that we're clinging to so tightly for assurance and security and worth and identity, all those things that are not coming from you, and cause us to cast ourselves upon your mercy and grace, because where else can we go? Thank you for the gospel being true. Thank you for this church this group of people that I love so much. Lord, we ask that you would now minister to us as we come to your table by your invitation. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.